1: Hello and welcome to On Boys, real talk about parenting, teaching, and reaching tomorrow's men, the podcast that explores and explains boy behavior. We're your co-hosts, Jennifer L.W. Fink and Janet Allison. Join us as we discuss some of the most compelling issues facing boys today. Our goal is to equip you with the information and support you need to help today's boys grow into healthy, happy men. How important is college? That is a fraught question for many families, especially this time of year. High school seniors and their families are grappling with college applications, the economic realities of applying to and considering college, and looming admission decisions. And let's be real, it's a question that is on the minds of almost every American family. We've been told that education is the key to success, but it's priced like a luxury item. Our guest today is Paul Tuff. He is the author of The Years That Matter Most, How College Makes or Breaks Us, as well as his previous books are How Children Succeed and Helping Children Succeed. Paul is also the father of two boys. Welcome, Paul.
2: Thanks. Great to be here.
1: Curious, how old are your boys right now?
2: They are four and ten. I uh, just dropped them off at school.
1: So you're probably not doing too much talking about college yet.
2: That's true, yes. I have these, these conversations are still a couple of years away, but I feel like, you know, as with everything in parenthood, they're, they're going to show up faster than I expect. They're not that far off.
1: And increasingly, I know my kids already in middle school were starting to say, why are they asking us what we want to be? Where They feel like if they don't have a path figured out by eighth grade, that they're going to be behind the curve somehow.
2: Yeah. It, I mean, it, it's striking both in talking to to the uh, individual students who I interviewed for this book and in reading the literature and sort of understanding the science, how, how many, I mean... I want the message to be that you don't have to worry, that, like, you know, take it easy, you can decide later on. But there is so much genuine pressure early on to get the sort of, uh, you know, resume fillers uh, and test scores and everything else that contributes to college applications. So I think, yeah, the system, we we as parents put a lot of pressure on our kids, but I think the system does as well.
1: So let's talk about that a little bit first, because You know, reading your book, and Janet is a former educator. She still works with people in schools. Do you think that maybe what we really need to do is kind of change the dynamic around school and learning? It's become so focused on a means to a job, a career, and a good life. It just seems like this feeds into our collective anxiety. Like There's no learning to grow as a human.
2: I think, I think you're absolutely right. So I think there is this pressure, especially in sort of, you know, competitive neighborhoods and families uh, to turn education into this race for a certain type of uh, credential, a certain type of uh, accomplishment. And it goes against what works in terms of learning. I think what is, I don't know if it's ironic or uh, just just complicated about this moment in in education is that actually the kind of skills that turn out to be most valuable uh, in the workplace, in a career, are also the sort of skills that you develop by taking a deeper interest in learning. You know, like, I mean, even like I've spent a lot of time reporting on liberal arts students, right? And so like the, I think the rap against the liberal arts is they're, they're just a distraction, they don't train you with the sort of particular job skills that we need. But the reality is that so many young people, especially those with well-paying jobs, work in the knowledge economy these days. That's where the opportunities are. And the kind of skills that you get studying things like you know, philosophy and English and history turn out to be really useful in a lot of modern knowledge economy workplaces. So I feel like the the message we should be giving our students is get, you know, study what you're interested in, follow your passions, follow your interests, um, develop the ability to learn. That all of that matters a lot more than the kind of resume lines and um, test scores that. Uh, that you need to use on applications.
3: Yeah. And what, I mean, what you're talking about is developing as a human being. And I was a Waldorf teacher. So, you know, we're very much about bringing in the arts, bringing in music and uh, looking at all parts of history and stories and this importance of having the capacity and the love of learning. And as you grow and get, you know, I mean, we've talked, we talk a lot about child development here and our boys, especially at age 15, 16, 17, are not ready to decide what they want to be for their life. They're just not emotionally, mentally developed in that way. Some are, many aren't. And so we apply more pressure to them, which clearly given suicide rates, anxiety, depression, it's not working.
2: Yeah, I think, and I think that you can expand that into the whole way that we think about higher education. That that I feel like we we push students in college to really, uh, you know, the fact that it's so expensive. Right now, you have to get everything you can out of it. You got to speed through it. You've got to, you know, not not make any wrong turns, not make any mistakes. And the reality is that these are, you know, adolescent or late adolescents and early adults who are going to make mistakes, right? And they're going to make lots of wrong turns. And I'm not exactly sure what the answer is because the, the pressures, I think, again, don't just come from, you know, over over anxious parents. They come from the system itself. Like it really is expensive. <laughs> the stakes really are high. Um, so I feel like the tricky thing for parents and that, that I wrestle with as a parent as well is how to find the right balance, you know, how to sort of convey that, that level of seriousness curiousness uh, to uh, our kids at the same time giving them the, the, the sort of freedom to do what every kid needs, which is experiment a little and figure things out and learn from mistakes and, um, and sort of stumble your way into an identity and a purpose and a path in life.
1: Here's an example of those high stakes that I just heard about last night. I was at the soccer banquet for my 16-year-old son, and I was sitting nice. next to another mom, we are very fortunate. We live in a small community, 5,000 people in the community, a high school of less than 400 most years. But we had a gentleman in our community who started a business that has done extraordinarily well. And each year they give out 15 Bachuber scholarships. That was the gentleman's last name. Each one is $7,000 a year times four years. So when you are talking about a small community, like there's a lot of power in that kids can go to school because of this scholarship, but they have to maintain a certain GPA to keep the scholarship. And so I heard about this one boy, he took um, AP Calc in high school because this is a path ahead. This gets you into college. This can earn you some credits. So he did that. He um, got credits. He then went into the next math when he started school and he struggled because it was hard and he didn't get the grade he needed, and he lost his scholarship, Mm -hmm. which threatened his ability to stay in college. Like, the stakes are really high for our children.
2: Yeah, that's, so I, I in in my book, I spent a whole semester in a freshman calculus class. So uh, well, I relate to that story from the point of view of calculus. That there, that that class in particular, freshman calculus, is one that we uh, are not organizing well in our colleges, It's partly for exactly that reason. That AP calculus sort of seems like a preparation for the next steps in math, but um, but really, it's not. Most students who take AP calculus in high school go back and take. The, the exact same course in in freshman uh, fall semester for exactly that reason, right? It's easier mm-hmm. to take the same thing again. But it's a, it's I feel like it's a signal, a symbol of how we. Uh, how the, the sort of strange messages that we send to our kids uh, about how to succeed in college, right? It's like we'll take the same course again, <laughs> again right. like just just you know do what you can to get the right grades. And you know maybe it was a good idea for him to push himself a little bit and take a course that he didn't quite ace. Um, except that yeah, the reality is right. in order to keep the money you need, you need to you need to do everything exactly right. I mean your 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 community scholarship is a an unusual case, but. There are lots of those types of um, pressures. I think that students feel to do everything right, and sometimes doing everything right in college is not actually the path to greater learning.
1: That's a thought-provoking point, right there. So, given the reality and the fact that this system is not going to change while my kids are working their way through, my youngest is thirteen. I doubt it's going to change by the time your sons are uh, post-high school age.
2: Yeah, even the no. fourth.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, what do we do as parents to kind of help our children um, manage this environment that is stress-filled? Uh, to encourage them to, you know, follow their path and deal with the reality that it's really expensive.
2: Yeah, so I mean, I think you need to find a balance. And and as with everything in parenting, those balances are hard to find. But I think there's a way to convey to students that these decisions that you make at the end of high school and the beginning of college really are important. They're worth taking seriously and getting information about and, uh, you know, thinking a little more deeply than maybe our generation needed to do at the same age. But at the same time, I think we need to understand that students already feel a ton of pressure about that and that we need to do what we can to relieve that pressure. And, you know, if they don't feel ready to go right to college uh, or make the decisions they need to make, then try and find, you know, a good path for them that's not through college at first. I think there's a lot of students who take a year or two, uh, you know, taking a few courses at community college or doing a work experience that means something to them um, that they could feel good about. And I think there's a lot of when students want to take a path to and through college, that's not the standard path. I think they often feel a lot of uh, guilt and shame and, and like they've somehow failed. And I think that that feeling actually makes it harder for them to find a happy pathway, right? But the reality is lots of students, you know, spend a few years doing something else before they get to college. Uh, and and so making that a positive experience, so they're not just sort of spinning their wheels and working minimum wage jobs and not feeling good about themselves, but instead they feel like this is this is a separate chapter in my life between high school and college that I'm going to uh, make meaningful for me and, uh, learn something from and, and be more prepared for the next step. That's a totally reasonable thing to do, mm-hmm. but that's not every student. I think there are lots of students who are ready to go right to mm-hmm. college, but sure. I feel like, um, in those moments where students are, are, are feeling this sort of external pressure where mm-hmm. it's not just what they want, but it's what they think they should want. Um, I think giving them more of a sense of the range of possibilities that are out there can be really a helpful, uh, Uh, job for for parents to take on.
3: Speaking of range of possibilities, I would love to hear your thoughts on vocational education and hear what you learned as you were researching this book, because that's a great pathway for many boys, especially. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about that pathway.
2: Yeah. So in my book, uh, the years that matter most, I followed this one young man from West, a small town in Western North Carolina named Ori, uh, who was, when I met him, uh, just had just started studying welding in community college. And so I sort of used his story as a way to understand the process of, of being a young person trying to make your way into the skilled trades. And in lots of ways, I think it's absolutely a good path for lots of young people. Um, Uh, But one of the things that I wrote about as I wrote about his experience was the fact that at the same time that he was Making his way through college. There was this sort of national Very partisan political debate about the skilled trades as an alternative to college There are people who were holding it up and saying, you know, you don't need to go to college You can just go and become a welder and make a ton of money And there I I thought from the point of view of my book There were a couple of things that were wrong with that case one was uh, that most of those skilled trades, you do go through college. You go to community college. he was, you know getting a two year degree. Learning how to be a welder is hard. Like he had to take thirteen technical courses with learning very complicated uh, welding skills, as well as like metallurgy and math and English and reading blueprints. And so you know, I, I feel like I, we shouldn't be holding up those those skilled trades as an alternative to college, but just as one pathway through college. The other thing is I don't think that we're being totally honest with our uh, young people, and I think you're right, especially boys about what kind of opportunities are out there for them in those trades, and there are opportunities, uh, but One of the things that really struck me when I would, you know, read the way that people talked in public about welding is that they would focus on the highest end salaries, right? So there were, there was an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that talked about how welders make $150,000 a year. And then that talking point got spread throughout the media uh, and certain political circles. And the reality is that the average salary for the median salary for uh, an experienced welder is $41,000 a year and those are not mostly starting salaries those are sort of mid career mm-hmm. salaries and that's you know that's a decent wage uh, but it's pretty hard to raise a family on $41,000 mm-hmm. and you know a median means that for everyone who's making more than $41,000 there's someone making less than $41,000 and so that doesn't mean that it's not a good path it doesn't mean it's not a good career but it does mean that we need to be honest with kids in high school and before and say yeah this is a path you can go. This is what it. What kind of school you have to do to get there. And this is what kind of salary is waiting for you at the other end. And there are lots of young people for whom that's the perfect choice, but we need to be honest uh, with them about both the, the process of getting there and the payoff once they do.
1: You know, the other part that I think sometimes is glossed over in conversations about the trades is the fact that many of those jobs are very physically demanding And you can do them when you're 20 and you can do them when you're 30. But by the time you're 40 and 50, your body is paying the price for spending those years working with your body.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, I think that's absolutely true. Um, And, and I also think that they are jobs that are, you know, there's a good likelihood they're going to change over the next couple yeah. of decades. They are automatable, right? So some of mm-hmm. them aren't, and and those are the ones that pay the best. The ones that are, you know, doing crazy underwater welds on ship hulls and things like that. But I was going to mention that, <laughs> right? Um, so those those are the ones that pay a lot. They're they're super hard to do. Um, but, uh, right, but, but I do, you know, there are more and more robots that weld than there used to be. Um, and that's going to continue to be true in those sorts of skill trades. Again, it's not a reason not to go into it, not to follow that interest. Um, but I think we have, you know, especially young people, especially young men, boys who feel stressed out. I think we have sometimes held up that pathway as a, like, you don't need to think about a college. You don't need to think about any of this. Just put it all aside follow this path, you're going to be fine. And again, that sometimes can be true, but it is more complicated than that. And I think there are a lot of young, young men who follow that path because they think, okay, this is a way that I don't need to think about college. And then it does, you know, it's, it's more, uh, it's harder, it's more complicated, it's more expensive than they think. Um, And they end up a few years down the road, having gone down that path uh, and it wasn't the right one for them. And now they're in their early twenties and sort of having to start that process again.
1: One of the things I found interesting about Ori's story, and this is true for you know, so many people that are trying to find their way post high school, is that his first plan wasn't go to college. It wasn't even go to community college and study welding. Um, his story is a story of kind of figuring it out as he went along.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, his first his first plan was to join the military, mm-hmm. um, and he couldn't for a variety of reasons, uh, as as you know from the book. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I write in the book a lot about uh, high-achieving students, um, you know, students who come out of, especially low-income, middle-class, first-generation students who come out of high school with a lot of ambition but not a lot of family resources. And the system is, you know, puts a lot of... Um, obstacles in their way and I think those are important to pay attention to but a much bigger problem is the students who are not in the top of their class but you know in the middle and the bottom of their class who are low income without a lot of family resources coming out of high school we just do not have a system in place to help mm-hmm. those students and um, there are always going to be students who don't love school right but we live in a knowledge economy and uh, it is very difficult to make a Middle class living, for especially in support of family, without some kind of post secondary credential, and I just feel like we have we're not being honest with ourselves, and we're not being honest with our young people mm-hmm. about how uh, complex it is to get from high school to the kind of uh, education you need to to really succeed. And so, yeah, I feel like Ori, when he got out of high school, was absolutely in that place where he just felt like he had very few options. Um, and he was kind of kind of right. Um, and yeah. I feel like we all need to do a better job of creating better options for those kids.
1: I'm wondering if there's not a link here between your previous books and this one. So in um, How Children Succeed and in Helping Children Succeed, you really wrote about and emphasized the importance of the non-cognitive skills. Things yes. like resilience and grit and self-control. You know, for somebody like Ori, he may not have had the academic grades to go ahead, but if you have resilience, you may be able to at least keep forging ahead and looking
3: for the next thing. This episode is sponsored by By Heart. Babies need to eat. And whether you
1: breastfeed or bottle feed, use formula, combine all of the above, you need options. We wanted to let you know about BiHeart baby formula. BiHeart has a patented protein blend that gets the closest to breast milk. It includes two of the most abundant proteins in breast milk. And BiHeart actually ran a clinical trial comparing their formula to a leading infant formula and proved that babies on BiHeart have softer poops, less spit up, and easier digestion. Byheart is also the only US-made infant formula to use organic grass-fed whole milk. So if you need baby formula for your baby, consider Byheart. New customers can get 10% off your first order by using code ONBOYS at byheart.com. That's b y h e a r t.com/podcast and it is 10% off your first order. byheart.com/podcast This is a limited time offer and additional terms and conditions may apply. We all know that vitamins can help fill nutritional gaps in our diet, but a lot of us don't like to take vitamins because we don't like swallowing pills.
3: How do you feel about that, Janet? There's some days that I look at my vitamins and go, yeah, I should take those. I'll do it later. But I'll tell you what's changed. I have gotten easy melt vitamins. I have the D3 and I have the B12s and a multivitamin. And I just pop them in my mouth and they dissolve. And I don't have to think about swallowing a vitamin. Yeah, and you don't
1: necessarily need water either to have on hand to get this big vitamin down. Yeah,
3: no. And they taste good and they're sugar free. They melt quickly. The reason they melt is because of plants, not chemicals.
1: Ah, plant-based nutrition. For a limited time only, you can receive a free, free three-month supply of Easy Melts Vitamin D3 with your first purchase. To claim your free D3, visit try.easymelts.com slash onboys. That's Try T-R-Y dot Easy Melts, E-Z-M-E-L-T-S dot com forward slash on boys.
2: Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. I think that... You know, when, when we can help our young kids develop those sorts of skills as well, they, they, you know, they're going to get into difficult situations, whether they're you know at Princeton or at Catawba Valley Community College, where they're going to hit some kind of obstacle and uh, they're going to need to dig deep in order to overcome that. Um, and so I feel like, yeah, the kind of preparation that we can help them do and that they do themselves in middle school and high school to develop those non-cognitive skills, uh, resilience and optimism and self-discipline. Uh, those really make a difference, uh, and it's something I think that Ori struggled with. I do think that that when he was successful, that was exactly what he was relying, what he was uh, drawing on those non-cognitive skills. I talk about that moment where everything was sort of against him, and they'd lost their, they were about to lose their their house they were renting, uh, and he was just he and his girlfriend were in really tough situation, and didn't know if he could get off the couch. And finally, after a couple of days, he did and figured out a way to get back to school. And, and that was ab- absolutely a moment where that kind of non-cognitive skill matters. I think it, it's also, I mean, this is what I keep wrestling with in terms of those those skills. I feel like the... You know, the, the bigger problem is is everything that was around Ori, right? And so to, just to, to put him in that situation and then to have him depend on his grit and resilience to get out of it, I feel like is setting lots of kids like him up to fail and to struggle. Um, So, I do think struggle is good, and I do think that the skills to overcome those struggles are important. But I also think we need to change the higher education system so that struggle, that kind of struggle, is not baked into it, um, and so that students can succeed without that kind of, uh, without needing that kind of intense level of resilience.
3: So, we talk a lot about, you know, if things would change, if this would change, if that would change. What are some practical steps? I mean, we as parents can, you know, try to take the pressure off our kids a little bit, but we're talking about a big, huge system here. Yeah. And how do we affect and begin to affect change?
2: Well, so I'll say that I'll... I'll I think there are lots of answers, and I think it's complicated. But I'll give two answers: one that that sort of I feel like par- individual parents can do to help individual students, and then one that all of we all of us as citizens need to think about if we want to really um, reform higher education. So the 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 fact that I think is especially useful for for parents, you know, one step down the road. So not we we've, we've talked a lot about applying to college and choosing college and trying to find the right option for right after high school. But there's also a lot of students who, uh, once they get to college, who really struggle and have mm-hmm. a hard time figuring out how to make their way through. And that especially happens, I think, in freshman year. Um, and, so and I, I think it especially
1: <clears throat> happens with boys as well. I think um, you're right. Yeah. You know, you look at the, the statistics and they're not great for boys um, getting through college.
2: Absolutely. Um, and so I wrote a lot of, about this, this one sort of school of thought in psychology that looks at what they call a mindset. Um, and a sense of belonging. And these uh, psychologists who include uh, people from the University of Texas and Stanford have identified freshman year especially as this moment where young people, their identity is sort of scrambled. They just, they don't know. Everything is so different than it was in high school. They don't know whether they can succeed. They don't know whether they can really belong. And in, the, in those moments, uh, our brains, our minds, our, our, our psyches are looking for signs, for signals from the environment that we belong or we don't. And so we're really susceptible to those negative messages. And if we get a few negative signs, we fail a test, we have a fight with a roommate, uh, we get a bill mm-hmm. from the bursar that we didn't expect, all of those get, get sort of inflated in our minds. And we say like, this is, this is a sign that I don't belong here. And I think that's when a lot of young people, uh, and again, especially young men, drop out. The, the intervention that these psychologists came up with that turns out to be really effective is a pretty simple one. It's just sending students the message, especially in freshman year, that things change. Uh, and it's it, so it's useful for them to hear it from parents. It's especially useful, though, for them to hear it uh, from near peers, from uh, people who are a couple of years older than them who have gone through the, the same thing. And it's simp- simply the message like, yeah, freshman year is hard. I didn't feel like I belonged either. I didn't know if I could find any friends. I missed everybody from high school my first class is really hard, but then I just sort of hung in there and I eventually met some people uh and figured out my classes and now I'm doing much better. Like that simple message is incredibly powerful when you that, are that freshman because you feel like you're the first one to have ever gone through this. Mm-hmm. I think especially for boys who are less willing often to reach out and to you know have those deep conversations with their friends. Um they they do feel really isolated and alone. So I I think that's something that parents can do, you know, just not not sort of leaning on it too hard, but just saying like, yep, I know it's hard. This is normal. I went through it too. Things are going to change. Is It's a really powerful message.
0: What yeah. you're
3: saying really resonates with me, Paul, because I went, I did not want to go to college after high school, but mm-hmm. my parents said, you know, you've got to go. We won't pay for you if you don't go. The whole story, mm-hmm. this was a long time ago, but um, I went for one semester and I came home. I didn't have any any support number one in choosing my field of study I didn't have any support in that place of like yeah this is really strange and it's a weird way to live and all of those things and Christmas I came home I told my parents I was not going back and I didn't and they weren't happy and then I did finally end up going after probably four more years and mm-hmm. I was married and pregnant and I'll tell you mm-hmm. what, that's a difficult way to get through college. Took me seven years. Yeah. but I did it. Um, but that place of not having that social support in that freshman year is, yeah, I, I really agree with you. That's a crucial. Yeah.
2: i I dropped out of my first college halfway through freshman year as well. So I can totally relate. It's a rough moment. Uh, and But, you know, one of the things that, so I think parents could do a lot to send better messages to their students, but so can institutions, so can universities. And, you know, I talked to this one young woman named Amy who uh, had uh, grown up in a suburb of Dallas. And I talked to her at exactly the same moment. So just after Christmas break, uh, uh, freshman year, and she had; she was just miserable. Like she had just gone home. So she had done, done poorly in freshman year, uh, first semester. She had like dropped chemistry and failed calculus, or the other way around. Uh, and she was pre med, so these courses really yeah, mattered those a whole matter a lot. Uh, and she was, uh, and she was like, uh, she had just been home for Christmas. She, she said she couldn't tell her parents how she was doing. She was very connected to her church and she couldn't tell anybody in her church how she was feeling because, uh, she felt like they all looked up to her. So she was under an enormous amount of pressure. And then I didn't see her again for a few years, uh, and then came back and, ha- and had this, you know, bad feeling that she will, would have dropped out, but she didn't. It turned out that right then she found an advisor at school who said like, you know, maybe you're not like pre-med isn't really what you want to do. She had chosen dentistry as her course of study because she'd heard that you make a lot of money uh, as a dentist without actually like caring. She didn't care about teeth or medicine or science or anything else. Uh, And so the advisor was like, you know, maybe you you should think about... studying something that you actually care about that means something to you. So she switched majors, got some different friends, uh, but somehow like that personal connection from an advisor made this difference. And so, so I feel like, yes, there are stories like yours and mine Mm -hmm. where like at, at that moment you can, you can, you know, not get that sort of connection and you can drop out and take a few years getting back in. Or you can have what Amy experienced, which was, you know, again, she was like, really not doing well, uh, but found someone who said like, you know, maybe if you fixed one or two things, things could be genuinely different and you hang in there and, and that happens. And so I feel like that's something that again, that institutions need to do a better job at, but that we as parents can do as well.
1: I want to ask you a question about helping our kids transition to college. One thing that you found as you were researching and reporting this book is that a problem for a lot of kids is the cultural shock when they get to college they are surrounded by wealth wealth and privilege Um, for many less affluent students and like, this is a whole different world. Talk about your, your feeling like, um, you're not accepted or you don't belong that they kind of find that disorienting. I know I struggled with that in college. I believe Mm -hmm. my second son is currently struggling with that. I know my Mm -hmm. first son struggled with that. You know, he was working, um, to support himself and put himself through college as best as possible. And his roommate, like his grandpa paid for the whole thing because he Mm -hmm. You know, basically discovered fracking. Is there something that we could or should be doing? I, I never really talked about this with my children, but would that be helpful to say, hey, th- you're going to bump into this?
2: Yeah, I mean, I you know, so it depends where they go. Like, so one of the one of the the sort of universal factors that I found in my reporting uh, for this book w- was that there is this big uh, stratification going on in higher education where students at the most selective institutions, uh, Ivy League schools and similarly selective institutions, the student bodies are almost entirely made up of well-off students. And in some ways that's always been true, but the stratification mm. is even more than it used to be. And that creates, so, so there's two obstacles, right? If you're a low-income student, a high-achieving low-income student, one is very few students are admitted to those schools from, from low-income families. But the other is the few who are uh, often really feel isolated and alone. Mm-hmm. And for good reason, they really are surrounded by lots of rich kids. So the the big change that has to happen is we need to you know reform higher education so that there's more socioeconomic diversity, especially in those selective schools. So you don't feel so alone because there are other middle-class and low-income students around you. But until that day comes, I do think there's a lot, first of all, that the institutions can do, but also that we can do as parents to, yes, I think explain to uh, to kids, where, how that's going to work. And I do feel, you know, the students who I feel, so I just talked to lots of people who, are, who were students at the time, who are, you know, adults looking back on their college years, um, who all describe the same sort of culture shock, just the strangeness of being not rich and surrounded by rich people. And it's a skill, you know, and I think it's an important skill. And I think that, that there are lots of signals there that make uh, those low-income students feel uh, alone and isolated and ashamed of themselves, but i think you can also feel a lot of pride in your working class roots mm-hmm. right right like i mean if you are you know your son with that roommate like you've overcome so much more than the kid whose grandfather is paying for everything and probably paid for you know the sat tutor along the way and right. the <laughs> lacrosse the lacrosse <laughs> team in middle school and uh, all of those advantages so i feel like there one of the things that that i found in my reporting that i found really heartening is there is this this sort of like first generation Uh, pride that's developing in some of these institutions, where uh, first generation students. First generation meaning their parents didn't go to college. First generation students are are finding each other and creating you know clubs and groups and 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 sort of advocacy groups, uh, both within campuses and um, stretching across campuses to say like this is who we are um, and and they're they, you know they're they're advocating for specific changes which I uh, on the part of administration which I think are good but I think the more powerful impact of those groups is just their existence right like just the 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 ability of giving uh, low-income students on those elite campuses a sense that, like, this is not a shameful secret. This is who I am, and, like, I've overcome a lot to get here, and I should feel proud about that.
1: we talked about what parents can do. What kinds of things can we do as individuals and as communities to support some of these system-level changes that are going to have to happen?
2: So uh, I feel like there's at least two ways that we can do that. So the, the big one, that when I talked earlier about sort of what our role as citizens can be, the, the I find the most shocking change that has happened in higher education over the past couple of decades that I feel like many of us are not fully aware of because of the way that it happened is we have defunded uh, public higher education in this country. So it, it's happened over the course of a few decades, but even since like 2001, most states on average have cut per student funding for higher education, public higher education by 16%, which is a pretty big cut at a moment where all of the signs in the economy are that we need more and better educated young college graduates. And every other country in the world is investing more and more mm. into public higher education. And so the effect has just been to shift the the expense and the risk of higher education from uh, institutions and the public to students, right? So you used to be able to go to a public college, whether it was a community college or a flagship institution, without spending much money and you would get a pretty good education and you'd get out without much debt. And there's a reason to have a public higher education system that works like that. And we really don't now. And I think that the fact that it happened, those cuts happened sort of piecemeal, bit by bit, in one state after another kept us uh, as the public from having a voice in this, you know we always like it was always like, well do you want your taxes to go up two percent this year or not? Yeah. And say, well, no, we prefer not. but without really having a debate about do we want to defund public higher education to the extent that we've done. So I feel like we've got to reverse that. We have to invest again in public higher education. And that's a political decision, you know, that that really is on the level of state budgets. Um, and so I think the biggest thing that we can do is is advocate for that and vote for uh, legislators who are going to uh, spend more on public higher education, just so, you know, tuitions go down uh, and student debt, debt goes down. But on the private side, I feel like the way that we can, we adults can, I think, help to affect changes often as alumni. Um, Mm. So these, you know, private institutions are admitting lots of rich kids uh, and very few poor kids. And there are lots of reasons that they're doing that. There are lots of incentives in the system, pressures in the system that are inclining them in that direction. But we need to create uh, alternative incentives, right? We need to push, find ways to push them in the opposite direction. And I think alumni have this great power because they, um, you know, they, they are a stakeholder in the institution. They're also you know, potential donors or actual donors. And so to be able to say, like, we, we want a fairer, uh, more inclusive admission system that does not just favor well-off kids, I think that's something you can say to the institution you graduated from and have a, have a real effect.
1: Where can people find you online if they want to, you know, look, if you are doing speaking events, if they want to learn a little bit more about your books. Um, And for all of our listeners, I highly recommend Paul's previous books as well. They are insightful. They have science in there. Just read them, especially if you have younger kids. You're going to want to read those first, too.
2: Great. Thanks for saying that. Um, Yeah, so I'm on Twitter and Facebook and Amazon and everywhere else. But the best place uh, I'd encourage people to go is to my own website, which is paultuff.com.
1: What would be the takeaway you want families to get from this book?
2: Uh, I think I want families to talk about this stuff, you know, and, and I feel like one of the reasons that I wrote this book is to give uh, individuals, including students, uh, and certainly including parents, a different sort of vocabulary to talk about uh, higher education. Um, I, I feel like we tend to look at it just through this lens of like, what what do I get for myself? What can I, you know, what are the pressures on my kid? What are the pressures on me on me as a parent? Um, And I think that tends to be both anxiety-producing, but also really isolating, that we all feel like we're in this alone, uh, and we have to compete with our neighbors and our peers. Uh, And the reality is that we need to change the system in a big way, and we are all in this together. You know, higher education is a collective public good, uh, certainly at its best it is. uh, And, you know, your kids' education benefits me, and my kids' education benefits you. And so I want... um, you know, in some ways, like there's some, there are some, there's some challenging news in this book. uh, And I think it's useful for kids and parents and families to discuss that together. But my hope is that it will push us all toward a better, uh, better, saner way of thinking about higher education, both individually as families and collectively as the public.
1: On this podcast, we talk a lot about the fact that you are not alone. So many parents of boys feel like Their son is the only one who is struggling in school, who's having a hard time sitting on the rug during circle time. They think there must be something wrong with me or my kid. And what we do with this podcast is we say, no, it's not just you. Look around. Almost every other parent and family is dealing with the same thing. And that's what I hear you saying is true for higher education, too. And there is power when we realize this. It's not just you and your family figuring out how to navigate the pressure and the expense and the financial and uh, social what to do after high school. It's all of us. So when we can talk honestly about that, we empower our sons, we empower ourselves, and there is opportunity to make positive change.
2: Amen. I love that idea.
3: This episode is brought to you by Audible. We know that you don't have a lot of time to sit down and read. That's why you're listening to this podcast. Go deeper with audio content from Audible. You can download a free audiobook with a 30 day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com slash on boys to download your free book and start listening. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash on boys. Thanks for
1: joining us. We are Jennifer L.W. Fink and Janet Allison, and we are here to support you in parenting and teaching tomorrow's men.